Hello, and welcome to the Philosophical Angle Podcast with your host, author Chris Angle. Hi, this is the Philosophical Angle Program, and uh, I'm your host, Chris Angle. I'm the author of four books on philosophy. One is the, uh, the Philosophical Equations of Economics. These books are available free for viewing at thephilosophicalangle.com. If you would uh, like to make comment about the program, give us a shout at contact at thephilosophicalangle.com. Along with me is my colleague and co-host, Rick Samuelson. Rick graduated from Yale, has MBAs from Wharton and Tufts, and he's an independent venture capitalist out on the West Coast. Good to see you, Rick. And you. The purpose of the Philosophical Angle program is to examine the nature of concepts being used in current media, and uh, we're going to talk about China and uh, why the... Uh, Communist Party of China doesn't tell the truth and and responds uh, harshly to almost anything it encounters when it when there is something it doesn't like, and so we're going to explore why the Chinese Communist Party does does not tell the truth and responds harshly in general. Uh, and uh, the first, I, I think, a good example of this is the uh, Chinese Party's uh, uh, virus. Chinese virus, and it can't even tell the truth about that. It's almost—it's considered a state secret, as as noted in the Epic Times. And look at how at Hong Kong, look how harsh and severe it responds to those who want freedom. Look how it treats the Muslims within its borders. Look how it's been stealing U.S. technology from universities. I think Rick will have more on that later. So why do they do it? And the reason is that because they are totalitarian. And we probably should ask ourselves, why is that a factor? Well, if history can provide any indication, authoritarian regimes of history have tried to steal knowledge and anything else they could get their hands on. Look at the Soviet Union. Look at their history. But we still have to ask the question, why? Why do they do it? And they do it for two reasons. First reason is that any authoritarian regime knowledge is not accumulated as fast as in a diffuse, decentralized system such as that which is generated by the free market enterprise system as we have in the United States. So in order for the totalitarian regime to keep up with the free market enterprise, they have to steal knowledge uh, that... Uh, so they can keep up. And the second reason is the, uh, I'm going to call it the Lord Acton principle, which is that power corrupts, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the reason why totalitarian regimes cannot accumulate knowledge as fast as the free market enterprise system is that knowledge constantly has to go only in one direction which is upward toward a central depository. On the way up to that central depository, two things can happen. First is that knowledge gets lost on the way up due to inefficiencies in passing the knowledge. And the second reason is that the, the knowledge passes upward. It runs into anti-knowledge, which are the laws and regulations that totalitarian regimes put in place with rigid conditions that come with the, idea, uh, with the ideology 
attached to the totalitarian regime, whatever that ideology may be. In the free market enterprise system, knowledge is treated differently. It runs in all directions, to wherever it is most relevant, and it goes to where it can be controlled in the most efficient manner. And this is the theory of information and knowledge relevancy. That is, market flows to wherever it's needed. Mar uh, knowledge flows to wherever it's needed. And thus, in the free market enterprise system, knowledge is dispersed widely throughout the computing functions of all the brains and information centers involved. And these diverse centers are able to keep the relative information and generate and remember all the information as the communication between the centers of knowledge can communicate with each other. And in the totalitarian regime, this is constricted. Now, we also mentioned the, uh, a second reason about the Lord Acton principle. And, and so uh, we, we, should, we should ask ourselves, how is it that this absolute power corrupts absolutely involved as a second reason? And so let's take a look at the, at the uh, ingredient, which was the construction of our consciousness of the decision-making process, which includes the, the ordering of our priorities, which are bits of knowledge. And we construct our priorities in our consciousness. And the totalitarian who has absolute power will construct a priorities of great moment or importance that will have great influence throughout his domain. And so we use priorities to, to order our lives and, uh, and, and, and their bits of knowledge. And all government leaders have to make great decisions of great importance, but those with absolute power make them without restraint, and this is key. Uh, they can do this because they have absolute power. Thus, they can make their decisions without receiving influence from others or receiving input and advice from others as they are unrestrained by governmental powers. So a totalitarian leader is interested in a particular ideology, say, for example, Islam or communism. The absolute, the absolute leader will uh, takes an interest in, in one of these ideologies and then starts to make the priority that he will mold the society to be commensurate with such an ideology. For example, in an Islamic country, such a priority might be that everybody shall have, uh, shall have to read the Quran. And when the totalitarian leader makes such a, a change or decision, he does not seek the influence or advice of, of prominent leaders in society with their knowledge. He does not seek a democratic vote of confidence in, in, in the new society. It, it is done without influence. Uh, the more that power is centralized and complete, the more the totalitarian becomes personally corrupted. He becomes delusional and drunk with power. Therefore, the totalitarian leader seeks only the thoughtfulness of himself or his immediate advisors who would also hold similar priorities that are close to his because he, as well as life in general, does not like competition. And so he will, uh, so in order to uh, uh, to avoid having to experience the second half of competition, which is the, uh, he does so uh, to avoid the divergence of priorities, which could lead him away from his own particular uh, decision, his own particular uh, priority that allows him to make a decision. And so, hence, <clears throat> uh, he becomes selfish, introverted, and often 
this is, can be even accompanied by paranoia. Take, uh, take Stalin uh, as, a, uh, as an example. If you read Solzhenitsyn, he was, uh, he was well portrayed as a, as a, a, to have paranoia. And this is the uh, corruption. So, uh, uh, and this is the corruption of oneself. Uh, and and therefore, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there, and and as we mentioned, Stalin is a good example of this. So we know absolute power corrupts absolutely. We have uh, we have established the reason, but why is it necessarily so? And the reason is that because there is no cooperative behavior in the totalitarian's life, and and because of that, he'll descend into selfishness. And as the uh, totalitarian leader no longer has any reason to cooperate with others. He, he examines his own priorities uh, alone. And if those priorities he chooses to live by tend to go away from the first dictum of life and, and economics, which is that life entities seek goodness for itself uh, and uh, continually seeks goodness for itself, but for the individual to seek collective goodness first and foremost, then a country is in for a problem because the um, because the uh, the flow of information will uh, will be inhibited, and also because uh, he's a totalitarian doesn't have to accept any other priorities other than his own. Uh, the amount to, of obligation to cooperate with others diminishes almost uh, almost to zero. And because it's natural and easy to be selfish, the totalitarian necessarily does become selfish and look to his own priorities. And the more you are isolated due to non-cooperative behavior, you'll, you'll, you'll believe in your priorities and thoughts and you'll believe that they are superlative. And thus, the despot becomes delusional. And, uh, and because cooperation with the despot is only one way. That is, the despot expects cooperative behavior to come to him without he having to export it from, his result, from himself. And because of that, the, his reaction is harsh when cooperative behavior does not come to him. The despot does not have to cooperate with others or with any outsider, and so his reaction is, is harsh and the more selfishly corrupt the despot, the greater the potential for harshness. And it is harsh because the despot has no ethics. And his only ethic is that the end justifies the means, which is not really any ethical philosophy at all. In actuality, is the lack of ethics. Is when you have no ethics at all. When you have the end justifies the means philosophy, you have, you have no ethics. And this is true because ethics is the appropriate dispensation of respect. We need respect in order to cooperate. And we need to cooperate in order to produce goods and services, which is the essence of goodness uh, for us. So the despot will retaliate with harshness and lies and harshness because he has uh, corru corrupted expectations of one-sided cooperation and, and, uh, and the and he has uh, corrupted the priorities for society. And uh, as such, he's, he is one he has no ethics, no empathy, no culture, 
and one who is totally corrupt. And if totally corrupt, he will strive to accumulate immense wealth. And so enough of me. Let's see what Rick has to say about uh, about China. Uh, well, the one interesting uh, point I would um, start with is, and this is certainly not my observation, but that of many on the left and the right who have wondered uh, how could successive U.S. administrations gotten so wrong um, their view on how China the Chinese government in particular would evolve as it became wealthier and more open to world trade, exchange of students, and so forth. It is remarkable, despite hundreds of thousands of students being invited to the United States to study at the universities, how little impact that effort over many years has had on Chinese society, broadly speaking. There's been little, any liberalization of uh, ideas in China. There is remarkably little dissent, for example, in response to the Hong Kong riots. Where is the widespread dissent within mainland China itself uh, over what are obviously very heinous acts. We know the mainland Chinese are aware of what's going on there. It's not a secret. It couldn't possibly be a secret. And yet you don't see much of an organized effort at dissent there. Why is that? <clears throat> what I find uh, very interesting is how the Chinese Communist Party has gotten the Chinese people, the mainland Chinese people, to go along with their totalitarian regime. Um, I remember a number of years ago when I was uh, in Shenzhen trying to negotiate a deal by a stake in a local securities company, and the first thing uh, we did was we went to meet the provi provincial governor for lunch. And I thought that was kind of odd. <clears throat> Only to discover that the state, at least the province, owned a stake in the securities company. And this is, an, you know, this is one interesting differentiating factor in China you don't see as much elsewhere, let's put it that way. It's not exclusive to China, but the fact that the Communist Party owns widespread stakes within businesses provides a convenient way of aligning private business with the interests of the state. So that's one rather clever uh, maneuver that the Chinese totalitarians have used to, to, to create that kind of alignment. Uh, the other thing uh, I, I would note is that uh, China, China has been very consistent in marshalling uh, 
call it grievance nationalism, grievance-based nationalism to great effect. And it's, it's reminiscent of what uh, Hitler's socialists did in, in Germany in the 30s. And their grievance, of course, was with respect to uh, the reparations following World War One and the perception that they were being unduly punished. In China, very much the same dynamic exists. Uh, they successfully make the argument that the West in particular uh, took advantage of China for many years and that for us to recover our former glory, um, the state must advance uh, the national interest um, and Chinese, certainly mainland Chinese, should subscribe to an extreme form of nationalism, and in fact they do. And that's that's very clear in all of the chatter whenever there's a disagreement with Japan, whenever there's a disagreement with the United States. Uh, the, the online chatter is overwhelmingly pro uh totalitarian Chinese government. Um, there have been many instances where uh, Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese protesters at universities uh, have been confronted by uh, students from the mainland uh, over protesting the horrific um, uh, lockdowns and, and you know riot uh, control measures that are being used in Hong Kong. So you've got, uh, you know, Hong Kong Chinese literally fighting uh, mainland Chinese uh, at foreign university. Oh. Uh, so I don't, because the totalitarian Chinese uh, Communist Party has been so successful at inculcating this notion of grievance-based nationalism and it's done through the schools and in the media they control the media uh, they also have aligned businesses with with this agenda uh, I don't see any way to blunt uh, their effort to become in the first instance the dominant military power in the Pacific except by directly confronting them militarily. That is where we are going. It's not going to happen through uh, undertaking another lecture at Harvard University. Uh, it's not going to happen by setting up American schools in Shanghai. Uh, all of those techniques are overwhelmed by the broad control that the Communist Party is able to exert over the corpus, the mainland corpus of China, through the media, through the school system, uh, through online um, communications, uh, the fact that they can monitor everyone, everyone knows they're being monitored. Uh, it's extremely efficient. It's extremely widespread, even in the smaller cities. Uh, people are photographed constantly. Their, their movements are known to the Central uh, Communist Party. So, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a situation where the conditions for, you know, or, or an Orwellian version of 
modern day state have already occurred in many respects. Um, so I'm not, I'm not optimistic about China's ability to accommodate um, Western liberal democracy uh, in any form. Its, its mission is to displace Western liberal democracy. Uh, they're probably not interested in doing that in Europe or the United States per se, but across a big chunk of Asia, yes, I, I think that that is where it's headed. Any predictions about Hong Kong for the future here? I think they would like nothing more than to have the United States issue visas to all the Hong Kong Chinese, um, have them leave, and replace them with mainland Chinese, and then problem is solved. What do you think really, really will happen? I think the game is over. Um, they will use military force as as needed to quell rebellion. They will uh, use uh, you know, their vast uh, monetary resources to buy into companies uh, or take over companies directly to align businesses with their interests. They'll use the same techniques that they'll, you know, Drastically order the uh, re reorder the educational system, alter it uh, to suit the mainland Chinese model, and over time, um, the Hong Kong Chinese will become accustomed to these new conditions, and they'll adapt. Right. Okay. Or great. They'll leave. Very interesting, and uh, we'll have to have uh, more discussion on this in the future. So, uh, thanks, Rick, for that, and. Uh, We'll see everybody next week on the Philosophical Angle program. Thank you for joining us on the Philosophical Angle podcast. Be sure to subscribe and join us for the next installment.